Is a student's perception of worth perhaps the biggest untapped opportunity for learning? Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with educational neuroscience since 1999. If you're looking for science-based language, learning and reading programs for your school or child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast absolutely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richart and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richart, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms and now helps teachers introduce the framework into their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces with an emphasis on practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part five, where we discuss the cultural force of opportunities. Opportunities, a set of conditions or circumstances that make it possible to do or achieve something. Simon, good morning. Good morning. Let me uh, start with this uh, opening quote from the chapter. Generally, the language that we use to talk about what we do as teachers is one of planning units, writing lessons, preparing activities, generating assignments, and assigning work. However, such language simplifies, obfuscates, and generally misses the point of what great teachers really do. Now, to me, that sounds like it flies in the face of the common perception of teaching. What do great teachers really do? I think those great teachers are interested in creating powerful learning experiences for their learners. And in those experiences, there are multiple opportunities for rich thinking that happens, multiple different types of thinking that happens. And through engaging in that thinking, that's how children develop that deep, rich, lasting understanding. That's what great teachers do. Yeah, right. So why do we think that um, all of those other things are great, like uh, generating assignments, assigning work and preparing activities, writing lessons? What, how do we get to the point where what you just said um, is better than what the quote says? I think those things are necessities. So they're often the means by which we get to the rich learning that happens behind them. The problem is it can be so easy because they're the bread and butter of daily experience just to get carried away with those things so that they become the purpose in themselves. But long term, what great teachers think about is that those things like work and assignments, well, they're there in service of the learning behind them. But it's the learning behind them that ultimately is what's important here. I guess it's easy then for the assignments and those uh, general day-to-day things to to take uh, some form of... Uh precedence or to uh, be emphasized in the day but to, to come to continue to come back to the learning is, is the hard part yes. so why is the language of opportunities more effective or helpful than the work than the language of say work or tasks yeah which speaks to what we were just talking about there I think the language of work or tasks creates a focus on what gets done whereas the language of opportunities necessitates a focus on actually what gets learned If we can keep our focus on opportunities, then that's what happens. And I also think there's something interesting about the word task. A task sounds like it has boundaries. Mm. And those boundaries might have been the boundaries imposed by the teacher in the creation of the task. 
Whereas an opportunity sounds much more open-ended. It sounds like um, an experience that a learner can take wherever the learner needs to take that experience. I guess then if you're going to use opportunity-based language with a student, instead of saying, look, let's get this done or here's something else I need you to do, you could say, well, here's an opportunity. And the student might then respond by saying, an opportunity for what? And suddenly you've got dialogue about the possibilities. Ron Richard tells an interesting story about how he observed a geography class. And uh, before the class, he had a chance to just walk into the room. No one was there yet. And he could see that there were things on the wall. Uh, Obviously, they'd been doing stuff. But uh, over on the cupboard, there was a pile of textbooks. And presumably, it was the uh, the set text. And he had a bit of a flip through that and uh, noticed that it's the usual structure of a, a chapter of a text. And, you know, at the end, you've got the summary section where it's basically distilled down the uh, the contents of the chapter and said, here's what we think is important for you to take away from this. And uh, reflecting on that, he thought, well, why would the student have to go through all that stuff just to be able or just to know what the stuff at the end is when the stuff at the end is already printed there? Yes. So what what was the point of it? And I think what he was thinking about before that class must have been, surely there was an opportunity to do something different. Now, Presumably there was because the textbooks were on the shelf and there were other things going on. What might an opportunity look like if we, if we know that we've got a textbook that has that? How do we change that? Do we just not look at the summary? I'm going to answer that question in a very long-winded way, Colin. So bear with me. Okay. I'm a 1980s American teen comedy movie tragic. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the movies I enjoy most from that period is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller... Bueller. That's the one. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first thing that always comes to mind. <laughs> and um, there are many reasons that I enjoy that film. Um, it's just it's just thoroughly entertaining in many ways. It probably speaks to a generation, which worryingly I am a part of. Um, but there's a part in the film which is really, really powerful, which I show in workshops that I run. And that's when the teacher that you just referenced, who's played by an actor called Ben Stein, um, delivers a, an economics lesson to a bunch of senior students. And I believe, from memory, he's speaking about something called the Hawley Smoot Tariff Bill. Indeed. And uh, a concept which sounds like it could be really interesting called voodoo economics. The problem is that whilst he's teaching this lesson, and and it's a deeply satirical lesson, of course, that that he's delivering, the students are completely disengaged from the experience. He's talking. um, They're just staring vacantly. Indeed, one student is literally dribbling. Yes, and I believe he sort of comes to and then suddenly starts to try and wipe the drool off his mouth. Very much so, and he does that when um, Ben Stein scribbles something on the board and there's a high-pitched squeak and it wakes him up. And it's interesting reflecting on that lesson. Actually, the, uh, Ben Stein does have a thinking routine that he's using, and it's the anyone, anyone routine Yeah, that you may remember. Yeah, he uses it very well. Very effectively. Effectively, he's delivering a monologue, And the students are present in the room while he's doing it. He's doing a thoroughly good job of teaching himself about the Hawley Smoot Tariff Act. And the children are just sort of there along for the ride. They're present whilst he's learning. Because he's the one that's doing all of the thinking in that space. So if we come back to your question and think about these um, geography textbooks. Yeah. Well, the problem with that section at the end of it, the summary section is that in the summary section, the textbook is doing all of the thinking for the students. In a way, the textbook is functioning as a personified version of Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They're both doing exactly the same thing. They're trying to pre-package the learning 
in a way that's easy for students to understand. But the problem is, it's done all of the thinking for them. Perhaps at the end of that geography textbook, it would be more powerful if it was the students who engaged in that process of trying to capture the essence of can the I, ideas that the book presented. Can I just jump in there before we talk about what the what a different opportunity might look like? I, I actually have had that experience from my own tertiary study uh, when I did uh, postgraduate studies in business. Oh, right. So in in well, I, I did actually look at economics, <laughs> and what I noticed, uh, particularly from the uh, from the MBA textbooks, is that they all have those nice summary sections in the end. And I found myself actually thinking, all right, well, I'm going to start this chapter at the end. So I went to read the summary at the end, thinking, okay, this is what they think is important. So when I then start at the beginning of the chapter, I'll make a note of those things as I come, come to them in, in the chapter. And then you suddenly think, all right, well, if those things are important, then what's all this other stuff? Mm. And then you suddenly realize that the textbook is only 200 pages long or 300 pages long because there's a whole lot of other stuff in there that's not in the summary. So why is it there? I mean, okay, so it might be useful to read anyway, but then shouldn't the summary be as long as the chapter? I'd like the summarising process to be an intellectual endeavour in which the students are engaged rather than the publisher of the textbook is engaged. Otherwise, the publisher of the textbook well, and the writer will reach a point where they think, wow, yeah, I've really captured the essence of the ideas in this chapter remarkably well. I understand this chapter much better now than I did at the beginning. But isn't the goal of the textbook for the students to feel like that? So is the opportunity here for the students to create the summary? That would be one really powerful thinking opportunity, I think, that students could engage in. We'd need to think about how we can wild that up a bit, um, to use David Perkins' language. Of our role as teachers, rather than taming the wild, can be wilding the tame. So the concept of, <laughs> can, you just, uh, <laughs> can you just come up with a, um, you know, a summary of this book chapter? I'm not sure how, what, what interesting an opportunity that would be for children. It might sound a bit dry. We'd need to think about how we can wild it up a bit. But the thinking moves there, that capturing the essence of ideas, that sounds really powerful. I got the impression that in that chapter, the teacher was trying to get the students to generate not only the summary, but the content as well. So I'm thinking about a textbook where you might get to the summary part and it's just a blank page. And then there's a comment there that says, well, that's your, that's your part. Mm. But even then, you're still reading pre-packaged pages in a textbook. So how do you generate other opportunities for students to generate content? I mean, I can imagine that, you know, wilding the tame is making a few people nervous here. Don't we want tame students? Well, tame sounds a bit dry, doesn't it? I think we want, we want students who behave respectfully because they choose to behave respectfully. But what we want in our classrooms is intellectual wildness. If we're talking about end-of-chapter summaries, one thing that might be interesting to talk about is at the end of each chapter in Ron Richard's book, Creating Cultures of Thinking, that we're talking about right now, each chapter has an end-of-chapter summary. Yes. <laughs> but... There's something interesting is when you look closely at those end of chapter summaries, they're not in essence designed to summarize what's come before. They're designed to push and press and probe. They're designed to have teachers move away and find ways to make sense of these ideas in their own practice and suggestions around that. Perhaps that's a more powerful way of thinking about chapter summaries. And perhaps that's the reason why thinking like this is so difficult because we've been using textbooks with chapter summaries for so long now if you said to someone here i'd like you to try and help these uh, students come up with the uh, the main ideas of this chapter but don't use the summary in the end of the textbook 
and don't use a list of questions, well, you might get a you might get a bit of a blank stare for a while. Mm. I mean, if I had to do that, I'd probably give myself a blank stare for a while. I think because that's that's quite challenging. Absolutely, but it is an interesting opportunity. Let's talk about something that the Singapore Ministry of Education uh, tried, which was an initiative called Teach Less, Learn More. Now that sounds kind of weird, but let me just read you this quote. It was aimed at reducing the amount of teacher talk and delivery of information so that students had more opportunities to actually engage with content and to learn rather than prepare for tests. Now, the comment made is, and I'll continue the quote, it's unclear how successful the initiative has been, mostly because the test pressures and demands on students haven't changed. But one, of, uh, but one has to applaud the recognition that teaching as telling and education as test prep are both weak imitations of the real thing. Mm. Have we been masquerading as teachers not doing the real thing for a long, long time? That's a great question. I think this concept of teach less, learn more is something I'd really advocate. And I, I, I laud the Singaporean educational team for proposing it. For me, I'd rather the wording, rather than teach less, learn more, and it may not be as catchy, but I think I'd prefer teacher talk less, students learn more. I sort of want to rescue the phrase teach a little bit in that phrase. Teach less, learn more implies that teaching is the act of a teacher talking. Okay. So I've got to think about that one for a second. <laughs> so if, but I don't, I don't define teaching as that. I define teaching as the process of enabling students to learn. So if that's the definition, then the self becomes the the phrase becomes self defeating. Teach less, learn more. Well, if we teach less, then we're stopping children from learning less, and so they can't learn more. But, but you know, I'm pl- I'm splitting hairs here because I know I know what they mean by teach. They're yeah. actually talking about talking. Yeah, but I know, I know what you also mean about uh, trying to uh, rescue the term teaching here because there was uh, a little while back I came across this notion that was quite popular in schools that said, "Oh, I'm 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 less of a teacher and more of a facilitator." And I think, well, hang on a minute. That, that can't be right either. We can't just completely throw away the fact that we are educators and just facilitators. That means I could just pull anyone off the street and say, here, facilitate this. So that doesn't really work either. And there are two parts of that, and we've used this language in a previous podcast. I, I think about teaching as both being an ideas purveyor and a learning facilitator. So the ideas purveying part is that's the part where we can talk. I mean, coming back to this phrase, phrase, teach less, learn more, I know there are some teachers out there who set a stopwatch for themselves and they limit themselves to 10 minutes worth of teacher talk every lesson. And when the stopwatch goes off, they think that's enough of that. And now it's time for the children to do something with it. Yes, it's good night for me and over to you. <laughs> that's right. So look, the theory behind this is really, really powerful. Too much teacher talk means we're rescuing children, means we're doing the thinking for them. Some teacher talk, really, really, really powerful. We inspire children when we're ideas purveyors. So let's not feel guilty about that. Let's carry on making sure that we can inspire children with interesting ideas. But after that, well, we've got to allow the space for the children themselves to process and think about what we've shared. And therein lies the opportunity, right? So if I, if I actually have less words coming out of my mouth or if I only talk for 10 minutes then suddenly I've got a whole space of time where other opportunities can present themselves. Yes. And I guess it's also a situation where if I'm continuously talking, then other opportunities just don't have the opportunity, if I can put it that way, to present themselves. Yeah, there's like, no space for them. Yeah, you're like you'll never come up with it. But it's interesting, just coming back to the quote, 
Um, he says, uh, one has to laud, uh, sorry, applaud the recognition that teaching as telling and education as test prep are both weak imitations of the real thing. But if the, if the pressure for test preparation is still there, is it, is it worth even trying this? Well, the, the assumption that lies behind that question is that the best way to prepare children for tests is to tell them what they need to do to pass the tests. But there's a lot of research, and I know that Ron references it one point in the text, that shows actually that the best way to prepare children for tests that require recall of information is to give them thinking opportunities where they can go away and process that information, not just by um, blindly memorizing it. More from my discussion with Simon coming up. If you'd like to catch up on all of the parts of this interview series, then check out the Learning Capacity archives. You can search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Let's have a look at uh, something else he suggests, and this is uh, a little bit complex, so we're going to have to explain this well for our listeners because you need to have a, a mental diagram in front of you. Richard suggests that we think about opportunities as existing not in isolation, and I'm, I'm quoting here again, but within an embedded or nested context. And then he talks about a pyramid. Now, educators and people who write books, uh, particularly strategy and business-type books and education-type books, they love drawing pyramids and diagrams and things. <laughs> so if you can imagine a pyramid, it's made up of events, projects, tasks, and moments. Now, we're talking about opportunities existing within a context of those things. Can you walk us through that? Yes, and I'm sure Ron likes pyramids as well because Ron was a math teacher before becoming a Harvard researcher. Um, so I'm sure there's something about the, the mathematical dimensions of that shape is appealing to him. Maths always comes out as being very important, doesn't it? It really does. And just as a brief aside, it's actually fantastic that Ron's a math teacher because it helps over the years, and I've mentioned this before, the odd occasional math teacher have said to me things like, oh, I can see how these ideas apply to the humanities subjects but I'm not sure that they do to maths. It feels like a bit of a shoehorn for me to get see, think, wonder yeah. into a maths lesson. Yeah, nothing ever applies to maths. Oh, of course, no, because there's no thinking in mathematics. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> that, and, we've, and I think we mentioned it in a previous podcast, I've said that to other maths teachers who have found that to be really offensive, that implication that there's no thinking in mathematics. Mm. So I urge the listeners to read um, the chapters on opportunities and routines in this book where Ron actually delves extensively into stories from maths classrooms yeah. where thinking is coming alive through the use of opportunities and routines. Um, but to return to your question... Well, let's have a look at it. So here's the, here's the triangle. At the uppermost end of the triangle, at where it reaches its pointy top we have events and the definition that um, Ron explores and by the way for listeners this is on page 160 of the book creating cultures of thinking Ron defines events as longer term learning opportunities so these might be this might be something taking place over a whole school term or even a semester or even a whole mm -hmm. year so a long-term opportunity but within those events nested inside them we have projects so those are um, opportunities which might take several class periods to complete but those projects collectively make up the event as a whole yeah within those projects so as part of getting those projects done and people familiar with project management from industry will this will make sense to them yeah within projects there are a number of different tasks 
and those indeed in themselves are thinking opportunities. Collectively, they constitute completion of the project. So the, the different parts that make up the project. And then within those tasks, at the bottom of the pyramid are moments. So those are all of those little instructional interactions between teachers and learners and, and with learners themselves that actually make up the tasks, which make up the projects, which make up the event. And so I actually have a specific example which might help us flesh this out even more. Sure. If, yeah, if I may share Absolutely. It. No, that's, that's helpful. So a school that I used to work at, a wonderful school that really explores these ideas of building a culture of thinking is Masada College. Um, which is a private Jewish school on the, on the north shore of Sydney. Hello to our friends at Masada. Hello, Masada, a wonderful, wonderful school. And they have a wonderful thinking opportunity program there, which is called Living Historians. So Living Historians is an amazing opportunity for the, for the year 10 students at that school to work closely with Holocaust survivors. Wow, that'd be powerful. And these are sometimes, in previous years, and now with the passing of time, there are fewer actual Holocaust survivors remaining. Sure. There are still some. Um, and so it can be with Holocaust survivors, and sometimes it's with the children of Holocaust survivors. And the purpose of that opportunity is for them to spend an extended period of time. So this is an event. This is what Ron Richard would call an event. Yeah. Working closely with them, interviewing them, hearing their stories, doing research around those stories to, uh, to sort of place them contextually culminating in an evening when they run a whole presentation night where the students share the survivor's stories with an assembled audience, including the survivor. Yeah, that would certainly add a lot of value and, and I guess, relevance to the whole thing. It feels really real and it feels really significant and it feels to the students essential that they get it right. Yeah, absolutely, because you, you want to be true to the, to the real story. You, you really don't want to be getting that wrong. You don't want to be inadvertently causing offence. You want to honour the experiences of these people. Yeah, it's it's almost a case where it's you you wouldn't say is this right or wrong. You would say, I'm sorry, but wrong is not an option here. <laughs> well, that's it. And this living historians thinking opportunity is a big event. This takes place over a semester. Yeah, it's comprised of projects, so a series of smaller but extended thinking opportunities that exist within it. So one of the projects that they'd have to engage in, of course, is preparing for the interview. That takes a lot of thinking. How do I get myself ready to interview this survivor? What kind of questions do I ask to avoid the yes, no answer? That's it. Something that a project that you yourself, Colin, are consistently engaged in, I'm sure, <laughs> yes. as host of this, of this podcast. It takes a lot of work sometimes. It does, you know. And, but that work, that's a really powerful thinking opportunity. So they're engaging in that same thinking opportunity as a project another part of it would be the conducting of the associated research that links along with these holocaust survivor stories and then within those projects then there are tasks so one of the tasks is con conducting the interview you know i've prepared for it that was a part of the project was preparing for it but then i've actually got to conduct the interview yeah. that's a, a thinking and learning opportunity and then of course writing the presentation is another task that's a thinking opportunity and then right at the bottom of this pyramid, moments. Well, they're all of those instructional moments along the way. And each one is a rich thinking opportunity as part of this Living Historian program. And if we think about moments, I'm, I'm just thinking about those moments when these Year 10 students are sitting down in front of Holocaust survivors talking to them. Yeah, because then they really are in the moment. Yeah. 
and think about the power of the opportunities that they have there to learn from the stories of these people and connect with them both cerebrally and emotionally. So I guess what this is trying to do is it's trying to get us to think about an opportunity as not something that happens ad hoc or it might happen today or it might happen tomorrow, but it really is happening in a broader timescale or we can think about them as happening in a broader timescale. And I guess that also reduces some of the pressure because we can think, I don't have to race into my classroom today and look for an opportunity. You know, I could think about something over a longer period of time or I could make a longer task and think, what are the opportunities within that time frame? Yes. That's fascinating. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about perceived worth because sometimes it's hard to actually be able to identify and recognize where opportunities are in the classroom. I mean, you think about it from a professional development perspective. Here's a couple of guys talking about opportunities. You know, Ron Richard wrote, wrote about opportunities. You guys need to now go out and, or sorry, teachers now need to go out and look for those opportunities. Oh, how do I do that? Well, let's start with this one. And maybe this is the only one we really need to think about just to get the, thing, get the ball rolling here. Perceived worth, because we often hear about students talking about the value or lack of value of what they do. It's like, why am I learning this? What do I have to do this for? A comment by Richard says, and I'll quote here, the teacher worth does not necessarily equate to student worth. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Instead, it's the ability of the teacher to place the activity within the context of a larger goal or enterprise that mattered... And here's my question. Is a student's perception of worth perhaps the biggest untapped opportunity? Yes. (laughs) After having said all that stuff about avoiding yes, no answers to questions, you've given me a yes. Okay, well, how do we then go about tapping into student perception of worth? Yeah. So I think back here to... A, an opportunity that I created for some of my students in a, in a lesson that I did that I taught in the past. I'll talk about that. Then I'm going to come back to living historians that we talk about. We talked about before and answer this question. So I think back to um, some year 11 students and I was teaching them about the, about poetry, which chronicles the migrant experience. Yeah. So we'd studied lots of poems, which were exploring the migrant experience. And they developed a lot of rich understandings that emerged from that study. But the culmination of that, the culminating thinking opportunity, was that I asked them to pick a poem that they most connected with and to create a short film as a representation of that poem. It wasn't simply just on just to retell the narrative of that poem. The short film was symbolically to capture the essence of the big and powerful ideas that that poem explored in relation to the migrant experience. So in other words, they had to produce something. Mm. Ron also talks in the book here about the necessity of novel application. Yes. That the ideas that um, children explore, the best thing through that they can do with a thinking opportunity is to create something new emerging from thinking about those ideas. Yeah. So this is an example of that. They had to create a short film capturing key ideas of, the, of that poem symbolically. In terms of perceived worth, well, this was an opportunity that for many of those students really had quite immense worth to them. It was a creative experience. Mm. Ken Robinson talks a lot about how there is no greater um, sense of perceived worth than that, than being the opportunity to be creative. Yeah. And so in terms of your question about perceived worth, I think there was a significant level of perceived worth within that thinking opportunity of creating a representational film. However, when we think back to living historians, 
perhaps that was an even higher level of perceived worth because that was about reality. Yeah. It was about people. It was about not wanting to misrepresent these stories. And it was about wanting to come along to a big presentation evening with a lot of people there and present something that honored those people. If children can see how the thinking and learning opportunities in which they're engaged connect to something that matters, then I think that unlocks the power of a potential learning experience in a way that probably nothing else does. Let's finish with an insight from uh, one of my favorite sounding authors, Mike Schmoker. And I'll, uh, I'll take a quote from Richard again. Um, Schmoker talks about, uh, uh, let me put it to you this way, he sees the replacement of low-level tasks with purposeful opportunities that engage students in thinking as one of the single most productive and low-cost things that schools can do to improve performance. This means reducing reliance on worksheets, pre-packaged curricula, study guides, and scripted teaching, none of which are actually targeted at the collection of individual students you teach. Ouch! <laughs> I can hear <laughs> shrieking. Uh, that's not in the book. That's me. Um, given that we're talking about cultural force of opportunities, what's your response to that? We're tapping in here to some thinking that John Hattie, who's been one of your previous guests, would probably explore as well. That education is sometimes full of distractions. And when we're talking about low-cost interventions, often the low-cost interventions are the ones that potentially yield the greatest effect. Mm. But but a lot of schools uh, can become overly concerned, perhaps, with high-cost interventions, such as redesigning learning spaces, perhaps, Yes, um, that probably won't yield as much benefit in terms of the learning outcomes. Or learning, than- or learning management systems. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just thought when you talked about learning spaces, I mean, the learning management system is the virtual space. And that could be part of it, too. And you that's can- not to say that those two things can't be important, but... When we look at opportunities and how to use Mark Church's language, is one of the Harvard thinkers, how can we bump up those learning opportunities as best possible? That's probably the most powerful thing that we can do. So I, um, I concur with Schmoker, and I'd like to add something into the mix there, which is just a practical way of making that happen. There's a really powerful protocol that can be run called the Tuning Protocol that emerges from the work of the National School Reform Faculty in the States and connects with a lot of Harvard thinking. Basically, the tuning protocol enables a teacher to bring along to a meeting anything that they want to be fine-tuned, to be developed, to be enriched. Yeah. I propose that a teacher could bring along an opportunity to a, to a staff meeting or to a meeting with their colleagues. The tuning protocol could be used in conjunction with Richard's research here about all of the characteristics that make for really effective learning and thinking opportunities. And in the company of their peers, could just fine-tune that opportunity, bump it up, make it richer. There is so much value in that for the learners, for the collaborative feel that a school creates. Maybe that's something that's really worth investing time and energy in. Yeah, Hattie's talked a lot about that, actually. We talked about that in, uh, in that uh, episode that you were referring to. He talks about one of the most important things being the power of collaborative expertise. In other words, instead of outsourcing, instead of getting stuff in from the outside, like prepackaged curricula and study guides, why don't we work together more often? Why don't we see what's working in our, in our local context, in our individual contexts, and go with that? Surely that has some value, right? 
if teachers can work together to create thinking opportunities such as the living historians example that we've talked about today imagine how much more power that has than children in a class sitting down and completing a few worksheets Simon it's been great to speak with you thanks so much for your time thanks Colin you've been listening to Learning Capacity brought to you by LearnFast if you'd like to know more about LearnFast then visit learnfasthome.com.au And if you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, you can visit ronrichhart.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.